Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And and I know that you guys are used to me every week saying, boy, do I have a special, unique guest for you this week. Because, you know, we usually do. Uh, This week, though, I'm about to rock your world. Uh, I have with us a guest today whose life story, you've heard of the expression, somebody's one in a million. This particular guest is probably more like one in eight billion or however many people there are on the earth today uh, because of what she's gone through, who she is, what she stands for, and what she's doing with her life today because of her story. Uh, Dr. Dawn Musalem is just an inspiration, and I can't wait for you to hear uh, her entire story. She's double board certified and she serves as a diagnostic breast specialist. She's really focused on patient-centered clinical wellness experience. She's got national recognition in the field of lifestyle medicine, integrative oncology, breast medicine, cancer prevention, cancer survivorship. She works out of the Mayo Clinic in Florida. She won last year, how about this, the 2021 Marquis Who's Who in America top doctor for her leadership, dedication, and achievements in integrative oncology. Now, here's what I'll tell you before she starts talking and telling us her story is if you think this is going to be an episode on nothing but but medicine and and oncology and lifestyle, you better buckle up because this is not what this is going to be about. That's going to be a part of this episode, but I think what you're going to find through this story is, boy, there is so much perspective that can be had from someone like Dr. Dawn. So Dr. Dawn, thank you so much for being on the Driving Change Podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. Thanks for the nice introduction. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I could have talked for 15 minutes in the introduction with your accolades and your life story, but you know, um, as everyone who's on our guests, and I know you said you and your husband are, are frequent listeners of the podcast, so you know that the first thing we want to know is let the audience get to know you a little bit. So let's tell a little bit of your origin story before we get into kind of the fun stuff you went through. Uh, tell us, take us back as far as you want to go. What led you into wanting, you know, growing up to become a, a lady who wanted to be in the field of medicine at all? Like, what was that? What was that? The early origin story for Dr. Dawn? I love this question and I, I love giving this answer. So, and usually when people hear this answer, at first they pause and like, what is she talking about? So I grew up in a small town in Ohio called Johnstown, Ohio. And so it was this little small town girl. And I remember the Today Show and watching Willard Scott in New York City. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. But my favorite part on the Today Show was the Smucker's 100th birthday. So when people would say, Dawn, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be in a Smucker's jar. And so they'd say, okay. And then I would say, I want to live to be 100 years old. And I was very serious about this. This was very important to me. And I was about five years old. So at five years old, I started reading the book called Life Extension. I would go to the health food store with my parents and buy health food, you know, bars, like with spirulina in it, go into the oat section and smell in the cold area where have a good, healthy smell, eat this Altadena yogurt, which was really healthy. And so starting at a very young age, I was committed to nutrition. When we would go on field trips, I would insist on packing the healthiest lunches possible. I was also really interested in exercise and started running even at a young age. I was a competitive gymnast. But then I also would say, I want to be a doctor. And I would say, I want to be a doctor because I want other people to live as long as I will someday. 
And so I went on, you know, through college, I studied nutrition and exercise physiology. When I graduated from college, I went on to do research at the Cooper Institute, where I studied centenarians. So I studied 100-year-old individuals who were still running long distances. And oh my gosh, it was the dream job. It was so fun because I was working every day with people that could be in a smucker's jar and running with it. So it was really super exciting. And that was kind of my stepping stone to medical school. But I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go to traditional medical school initially. So I went to naturopathic school to start with in Arizona, and I loved my training, but I, I knew I wanted to go a little deeper into medicine. I knew I, wanted, I didn't want to just be limited to naturopathic school. I wanted to learn a little bit more about conventional medicine so I could kind of blend both of them together. So I went on to traditional medical school after a few years of naturopathic school. And so this is what was really interesting. So I'm studying in traditional medical school, Midwestern University in Arizona. And it was a few weeks into my classes and I started not feeling good. I was a little weak, tired, short of breath. I was coughing. I loved to run. So I would you know, usually run 10, 14 miles a day. I would climb the mountain, Camelback Mountain, once or twice a day in Arizona. And it's just how I got through studying. So I would study, go climb the mountain, go back and study, go run. It was just kept me busy, loved this stuff. I couldn't do anything. So I went to see a doctor. And the doctor said, oh, it's in your head. You're studying this stuff in medical school probably. And I was actually. I was studying pulmonary health, so I just ignored it. So three more weeks go by. I'm feeling worse. So I go to another doctor. They say the same thing. No, nothing's wrong with you. No one during this time had listened to my lungs. So I get worse. One day I'm going home from medical school. This is in November of 2000. And I collapse going up the stairs to my apartment. So I'm taken to the emergency room. And Within the next 24 hours, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. I had a 16 centimeter mass in my chest. It had collapsed my entire left lung. My left lung was filled with fluid and it was shifting my whole chest and heart and other lung over to the opposite side. Wow. And the tumor was kind of wrapped around the heart so the heart wasn't beating properly. So it was a very emergent situation. They had to do an urgent surgery to pull the tumor off the heart, to pull part of the tumor off the lung. The first surgery wasn't very successful, so they had to take me back in for another surgery. And that's when they came out with a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that was a diffuse B-cell lymphoma, so it was really fast growing. And so the first doctor that came in to see me came in the room, and he was the on-call doctor because it was really late at night. And he said, you know, I have bad news. You have very advanced cancer. This is the kind of cancer that's very, very hard for us to treat, especially since it's so far along. And I had a friend in the room who had asked, like, what do you mean? How far along? They asked this question. I'm like, don't. That's not the question I want an answer to. Like, why would you, why would you ask the, this person? Eventually, became my husband, believe it or not. But I was like, why would you ask that stupid question? I don't want any numbers. I'm not a numbers girl. I want to be an outlier no matter what this, the situation is. And so the doctor actually said three months. So here I am, the girl who's supposed to be in a smucker's jar, living to be 100 years old, in this Doctor says three months to live, and I'm like, you can't predict that. How old are you? Or how old are you here? You're in your early 20s. Yeah, I was 26 years old. Oh wow! So it just wow. totally threw me for a loop. So fired that doctor. Thank goodness he was off call. The next day, my real doctor came in, Doctor Paul. This man was amazing. So I had a picture of Jesus next to my bed. I'm Roman Catholic, so we're very faithful. And this doctor came in the room, and he's like, "Are you willing to fight?" And I said, "You bet." And he said, I'm going to be by your side every single step of the way. He's like, it's not going to be an easy journey. And he looked at the picture of Jesus and he said, 
And he's really the only one that knows the answer here. He's like, but we're going to fight this. And it gives me chills to say it. And this doctor, wow. I mean, I'm, how incredible. He's such a healer. He reached out to City of Hope, um, which is a, a very strong uh, cancer center here in America. And so basically, my treatment for my cancer following those first two surgeries was to start chemotherapy in the hospital immediately. Um, so I did about four months of intensive chemotherapy, followed by more high-dose chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. And then I did two months of radiation therapy. And I didn't quit school. My college was very supportive. They were able to adjust my schedule for me to take tests when I needed to take tests. But Jeff, what was super cool during my cancer journey is the fact that I never felt sick. I had this incredible like heightened sense of existence, this like direct connection with humanity, and I was on top of the world. Weirdest thing in the world. Like, you should feel sick when you go through this stuff, but I, I didn't. And when I had a bone marrow transplant, this was in 2021, very different than we're doing nowadays. So I was kind of like that girl in a bubble, if you may. You know, you're supposed to stay in your room for about four, six, sometimes eight weeks for some patients. And you can't get out of the room, but you could see people in the other rooms outside of your room, and they look so sick. The oncology team knew I loved to exercise, and they knew I wasn't going to be able to be outside and running and climbing the mountain. So they brought a bicycle for my room. And they even got another bike that was in the nurse's station because they knew I woke up early in the morning to usually study. And so they let me sneak out of my room at 4 a.m. and they put the bike so I could see the vista of the mountains. So they, would, they were really, they were just wonderful with me and especially being so young and stuff. So I rode my bicycle, I got my chemotherapy and my bone marrow transplant. My medical colleagues and professors would bring tests so I could take my tests while I was going through my transplant. Um, my naturopathic colleagues that I had met and were uh, just some amazing doctors in Arizona, Dr. Dan Rubin. He was part of my treatment plan, so I did use some naturopathic therapies alongside of the conventional therapies. We were certain there was no drug interactions, but felt like a million bucks. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so let me it ask you great. this. So first of all, as an aside, my guess is at some point you were on RCHOP or had some, some combination of Rituxan with Rituxan. I didn't. I was before Rituxan. You were before Rituxan. I was right before it. It was just starting to come out. So I didn't get the R. I got the chop with my Oh, R. wow. Okay. That, that's tough. Boy, that, that's even more impressive. And I've, I, you know, probably the audience is like, what are they talking about? They're speaking a different language. Because yeah, I worked on Rituxan when, when I was in industry. That was that was my drug. That was one of the yes. main drugs I worked on. So, so, so how about that for that. some more serendipity, right? So the fact that you didn't have that and you went straight CHOP, which by the way, if you're listening, you have no idea what that means. It's a very toxic drug combination for this type of cancer. The fact that she's done, she did as well as she did is amazing. And it brings me to my next question, actually. I've seen lots of studies over the years from lots of different institutions that show that a person's frame of mind, their mindset, is a big indicator on how well they do through treatment. When you were going through this, you got the first initial diagnosis. If you wouldn't mind, just take, take us back to that moment of vulnerability. Now, obviously, you're an overcomer. You're just built that way. I can tell it's just who you are. It's kind of how you're made. You just have that energy about you. But was there that moment of where you saw the smuckers thing flash in your eyes and go, oh, and you mentioned it earlier, like, here I am, 26. I'm, not a, I'm barely over a quarter of the way to my goal, and now I've been hit with this. Did you have that kind of, you know, oblique moment? What did that look like for you? Because a lot of people obviously do. That's a great question. And my answer is one that some people may not believe, but I think I understand why my answer will be the way it is. I was young. I wasn't yet married. I didn't have any children. So really, I was fighting for my own life. 
So I had a lot less vulnerability than would be a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandfather. I just had to really fight for my own life. Though I knew that my mom and dad and my brother wanted me to fight. It was really, you know, I didn't have to worry about other people that were dependent on me in my life. So that first doctor that came in that was a little bit insensitive, that kind of said three months and you need to quit medical school and, you know, was kind of being such a pessimist, that fueled me. I mean, that gave me like the ammunition I needed to just fight and prove him wrong. So So in hindsight, so in hindsight, that almost was a good thing. He showed up that night that he was on call because he set the anchor for you to go, oh yeah, well watch this, right? Hold my beer, as they say in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I mean, I think everything in life happens for a reason. And you know, I, it didn't it didn't penetrate me. I think it really hurt my family, and I think it put them into a spiral. So in healthcare, we have to be very careful because families and patients hear every single word we say. And so for me, I learned so much in medical school. But holy cow, I learned everything as a patient with how to really make those important connections so the patients trust us. And that's really when healing begins. I mean, I don't care. You can have the best chop in the world and bone marrow transplant radiation, but if you don't help that patient believe in what we're doing, like Dr. Paul did, you know, I felt like he was really healing me. And we did. We cured stage four cancer that was really aggressive. And, and so it was really, truly a blessing. It was just awesome. Wow. Wow. What, what a powerful story and experience. So, so you're 26, you go through this, um, you know, how long were you in treatment? What did that, what did the recovery look like? T- take us through that. Cause I know there's some other really crazy events that happened to you following that, but I, let's, let's walk this chronologically out the, your story. So you go through treatment, you're doing well. What's that look like? What's it, how long, how long of time goes by and, and yeah. what do the, the after effects look like? So in 20, uh, 2001, you know, finished my radiation treatment. I was doing uh, research that summer, continuing to medical school, feeling great. My significant other at that time, we ended up getting engaged and eventually got married. And guess what? That first doctor was wrong again. I got pregnant with my daughter, but it was so crazy because we didn't know I was pregnant. So I really didn't find out I was pregnant until I was about five months pregnant um, because we didn't think it was possible. And so it was just this real like miraculous thing that happened. And that was towards the end of my third year of medical school. So I was able to have my daughter when I was delivering my daughter, I remember just, it was so difficult. And I thought, gosh, I just don't remember in medical school and clinical training, women struggling as much as I am. And here I am pretty fit. You know, I, I, I was still running and exercising all the time during my pregnancy, like I did during chemotherapy and radiation and whatnot. But the delivery was really challenging. But I kind of just brushed it off. No one really thought anything of it. And so a few weeks went by. My daughter was about three weeks old. And I remember standing in the kitchen. My mother was visiting, washing my daughter because I couldn't even bathe her at this point. I couldn't carry her. I was so weak. Like, what is going on? This isn't right. You know, Jeff, I kind of felt very similar to how I felt when I was diagnosed with cancer. And that's what was kind of in the back of my mind. Like, oh my Mm. gosh, this cannot be happening again. Could the cancer be back? And then I almost passed out in my kitchen. And so my family took me to the emergency room. And a doctor came in the room, they did some blood tests, and they said, you have a lot of abnormalities in your chest x-ray is severely abnormal. We need to do an echocardiogram of your heart, which is an ultrasound of the heart. So they did this ultrasound of my heart to check the heart function, and my heart was only beating at 8%. At what percent? I had to, 8. 8? I thought you said 80. 8? So 08, not 80. Oh, wow. So it just really wasn't sustainable with life. So if I wasn't fit, 
I, you know, I probably would have had symptoms much, much earlier. So who knows when I really developed this heart failure, but I definitely had it when I delivered my daughter. And that's why it was so hard for me to, to have the delivery. I couldn't, I just thought that's how hard. It's I amazing, it's it's amazing looking back and, and divine intervention that you survived the, the birth. With that, right. with the heart in that. It was, and there were complications after the birth. There was some bleeding complications. So I wasn't even able to hold my daughter for a few days after the delivery, but they just figured it was because of all the chemo and radiation that I had had. So, every, you know, everything gets blamed on cancer and cancer treatments, but the heart failure issue we think was probably the cancer, but the truth is, is I just had a baby too. And there are some situations where women develop peripartum or postpartum cardiomyopathy. So it's a little bit of a mixed picture, but common things being common, it may have been the cardiotoxic treatments I received. And in all fairness to the cancer treatment, it cured a, a major problem. We needed that treatment to get rid of the cancer. And the tumor was wrapped around my heart. So unlike breast cancer and other cancers, my radiation had to go right inside of my chest, pretty close to the heart area. Um, so it just was one of those things. So here I'm diagnosed with heart failure. This was not good. You know, I remember when the, when I was diagnosed with cancer thinking, thank God, because if I had asthma or something that was chronic and I had to live with a chronic disease, I'm not equipped to deal with chronic disease. And now they're telling me I have a chronic disease. Well, not really, because the next doctor that came in the room is like, you're not going to be able to have that heart for more than a year. I'm like, this is that question. It's not going to be a chronic disease, I guess, if I'm not going to have this heart for more than a year. So this is in 2003. So I left that doctor and that medical team, and that's when I went to Mayo Clinic. And I was still finishing up my medical school training. And ironically, I was doing clinical rotations at Mayo Clinic. So I went and saw the heart transplant, heart failure team at Mayo Clinic in Florida. Wow. I mean, that's where they just instilled so much hope. And they said, no, we're not going to think of transplant right now. We're going to first start with medications. So they started with medications. I started feeling somewhat better. I had much more functional capacity and quality of life. So again, this is 2003. I stayed home for a few months off of medical school um, all the way up until about 2004. And then I actually went back to, to, to my medical school, finished my medical school training, and eventually started residency at Mayo Clinic. Went to residency. It was pretty much a struggle, though, because I just wasn't, you know, with that stamina that all of my other colleagues had. So Went through residency training, and around 2006, I started getting much sicker with a heart failure. They listed me for transplant at that time. They put a device in my chest that helped the heart beat a little bit better. And then in 2008, my husband died of sudden cardiac death. And so that really, honestly, was the hardest thing that, that was the hardest thing that I've ever been through. And that really caused my heart to not do too good. But what was so interesting, you know, is around 2009, after my husband died, I started getting stronger again. And so, you know, it was, it's hard to explain. The, the thought, medical thought, was that that biventricular pacer they had put in my chest a few years earlier was finally starting to help the heart remodel. And it looked like that's exactly what was happening, is this ejection fraction that was once very, very low, you know, it went from 8% and eventually went up to like 18, 20%, but it just hung out there for years. It actually was starting to climb up to the 30% range, even 40% range. It was crazy. But even though that number was better, I didn't feel 100%, but I felt pretty daggum good. So they took me off the heart transplant list, went, did residency, did a hospital fellowship, became a hospital doctor at Mayo Clinic with this crazy schedule. Because, you know, I just love the adrenaline and I'm helping people save lives and I'm really touching the hearts of these patients in the hospital. And I was so high energy, no one could slow me down. So did hospital medicine for about five years. And then in 2015, I took a sharp turn 
going down. And, you know, it was around this time, a little bit before that I met my husband right now, and he was very supportive during all of this. And thank God he's been by my side ever since. But in 2015, I was driving with my daughter while in Cleveland, felt really dizzy, saw the doctors there, things didn't look right, went back to Mayo Clinic, had to do more tests, and so the heart just wasn't working as well. So then one day, I'm going down the stairs to do a presentation to a, a, a group of colleagues of my leadership team to present a new proposal of a project I wanted to start at Mayo Clinic. And I remember walking down the stairs and my legs were just shivering. They were just shaking. They were so weak. So when I got to the room where I needed to present, I just paused before I entered the room and they invited me in to go ahead and start getting prepared for my presentation. And fortunately enough, everyone was sitting. I was like, thank God, there's no way I could have stood for this presentation. So I remember sitting down and ironically, the woman to the left of me was my neighbor. And the woman to the right of me was a previous hospitalist with me. And the room was filled with about 40 people, about 50 to 60% were doctors. So it was my turn for the presentation. So I get started, my hands on the mouse and I couldn't, I, wasn't coordinated. I was trying to move the mouse and the screen. I'm like, what's going on? And then all the people in the room started getting fuzzy and dark, and then everything went black. It's the last thing I remember. What I felt during this moment of having a complete ventricular fibrillation, cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death, whatever you want to say it was, was a moment of complete stillness. It was like I was suspended in air. I don't, I didn't feel falling back or any of that. I just felt like my body was still there was like a little bit of wind that was kind of blowing at me. It was very peaceful and there was no fear. It was like completely comfortable. It was like just this state of existence that was something that was known to me, but yet I had never been there before. And then all of a sudden, boom, I get hit in the chest by my defibrillator, which shocked me back to life after multiple times. The defibrillator kept on going off, but finally the defibrillator worked and it brought me back to life. So I like literally bounce up. I'm like, okay, I can finish my presentation. I had so you much adrenaline. Not. I was like, no, no, no. You did you not. You, 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 come on. You literally thought you were going to finish. All right, hold on. I need to take a break. I need to take a breath. I, I, I think the audience right now, everyone is like, okay, everybody listen, take a breath. Because yes, you just heard that story and it's not even over yet. Uh, so let me just recap a couple things. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm tracking with you. So at 26... You get diagnosed with advanced, diffuse, large B-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, tumor wrapped around your heart, told you had three months to live, and you will have none of that. So you go through treatment, you beat that, and you, 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 you marry the guy who's kind of there with you at the beginning of that. You go on to beat cancer, then you go on to have a, a beautiful little girl, difficult pregnancy, afterwards find out you're having heart failure, with your heart running at 8% and all kinds of issues there. And then later on, you, your, your husband has a massive heart attack and passes away, which is crazy irony through everything you're dealing with. I mean, and then you have a major heart failure in front of your peers and pass out in a boardroom about to give a, a, a presentation and get shocked back to life four times. So how are you living out there? How's your life looking? Anybody feeling like they're... If you're having a bad day, I think maybe you a little perspective check. So I got to ask you this question because you are such a positive person. Come on, tell me at some point in that 15 to 18 year period, you had to throw yourself a pity party a couple of times, didn't you? Because you just, you seem so daggone optimistic and positive about every stage of this. And people are out there going, I don't know how I would deal. I can't even deal with, 
you know, I get a migraine and I'm down for a week and I want to cry. And this, and here Dr. Dawn is just overcoming one huge obstacle after another. Was there no point where you just wanted to sit down and drink a bottle of whiskey and cry and write a country song about this whole thing? Definitely not whiskey because that's a carcinogen. And remember, my goal was still to be 100 and I just had to figure out how I was going to get through this. But I figured that there had to be a way. So I kept on just trying to find an answer. Like, how can they fix me? There's got to be something we can fix. And in the back of my mind, I knew, you know, when I get bad enough, I'm going to just need a new heart. That's what it's going to come down to. And starting in 2016, that's when we started having those conversations again was, yeah, this heart isn't working so good. But the problem was this, is in traditional heart transplantation medicine, they do this test that's a VO2 test, and they kind of wait for that number to get really low. And so that low number is really good for the normal person, but I was always quite athletic. So at Mayo Clinic, they individualized things. And so they did a special test that showed that I really was not getting the amount of blood to my brain and my muscles the way I needed it to. And so from really 2015 all the way up until 2019, it was one complication after another. Um, we tried multiple procedures to see if we can help to patch things up. And with each procedure came another complication. I right up, uh, up until 2000, I guess, 19 in July, uh, the last procedure I did actually caused me to lose vision in my left eye. I had like a little retinal artery occlusion or like a stroke in the eye. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. That's when we said, okay, it's time we list her for heart transplant. And so that's what we did. So in 2019, December, I was listed for heart transplant. That was the first time in my entire career, really, since my daughter was born, that I had taken any you know, meaningful time away from clinical care. Thank goodness, though, I was able to do stuff virtually. So I was still working during this, but doing it more in a virtual capacity. I had gotten so sick that I couldn't even examine patients anymore. I would try to examine patients, but I'd have to put my body against the exam table just to kind of even hold myself up. And when I would do breast exams, because I mainly see breast patients, my fingers would be blue. When I'd walk to the car after work, I'd have to sit in my car for like 15 minutes just so I could safely drive home. And so it just was, it was just really frightening. So I got listed for transplant. And the problem with transplant is there's an organ shortage. So you just don't know how long you're going to wait. And we thought that the wait would be pretty short, short for me because I'm a petite woman. And that was a thought, but I'm also a very common blood type. And so they ask you this question when you're listed for organ transplant, if you would be willing to take an increased risk donor from someone who was an IV drug user or who lived a promiscuous life or who was incarcerated. And knowing what I know as a physician, I was like, no, I, I don't want to do that. I was just very scared. So I said no to that question, which is probably really foolish because a whole year went by. I was getting more and more sick, waiting for this heart to be found. I ended up getting COVID and I was really sick with COVID, but fortunately enough, I was able to manage things at home with a home health nurse because they knew it probably was better for me not to go in the hospital. And then in January of 2021, I was just too sick to be home anymore. So they admitted me to the hospital for IV medications that would help pump my heart. I wasn't a candidate for some of these other uh, interventions like a, a LVAD, a ventricular assist device, or a balloon pump because of my body size and prior radiation. So my only options were medicines to help pump the heart or true life support. So admitted to the hospital. And on February 4th, my doctor came in the room with me and said, Dawn, we found a match. And so, yeah, you, you would think you would be super excited when you hear that, but you're not. You don't know how to react. It's just like, it's this, it's such a complicated emotion because here you're just being told that someone is going to die so you can live. So it's really hard. Wow. And then the next thing the doctor said, but, and guess what he had to tell me? It's a high risk donor. What do you want to do? And this donor has hepatitis C. And so I was just, 
on pause. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, what do I do? What, what decision do I do? And so I just prayed and I said, I think it's time. So I went with it. And so I will never forget going down to the operating room and having eye contact with my surgeon, Dr. Sariapoglu. I had such a sense of knowing that we were doing the right thing. There was absolutely no fear. I had complete confidence in the medical team at Mayo Clinic. I had complete confidence in knowing that this was the right heart for me, even though this was something that I was a little bit um, hesitant in the beginning to consider, it just felt right. So going under anesthesia, I felt very similar to how I did when I had that V-fib arrest, just that complete stillness, acceptance, and awareness that this is what I needed to do. So a few days later, I wake up to the beating of this new heart. Oh my gosh. It was a total spiritual awakening. I mean, it was the most magnificent experience a person can ever go through. My heart was beating. I felt my body beating against the bed. My hair was like whistling. I could hear my hair like touching the white sheets. Every sense was just amplified. It's like every cell in my body was vibrating and oscillating on a higher level of existence that's ever possible. I'm a super high energy person. I was way up there. It was so cool. And it's still that way. So I'm never going to lose it. It's just awesome. So, you know, you asked me a question, you know, and I think I don't have toxic positivity, but I just have such strong purpose in life, not necessarily to just be on a, a smucker's charge, but to really help humanity and help to, you know, embrace loving compassion. That's really just what I want to do. And after my transplant, you know, you think this stranger gives me this magnificent gift of life to let me live? How can I not love all of humanity? And I do, it's like, I just see people and I just love them. And so that's really what has come out of my heart transplant is just this incredible spiritual awakening. But then I went through this funk, like four days after my transplant, I started hating the thought that I got this hepatitis C heart. I was angry and mad. I don't know where this came from. You get, you get a lot of medicines and you get these high dose steroids. So I'm gonna blame it on the steroids but it's a <laughs> transient thing. So I go to bed that night, angry. I'm not an angry person. I don't think I've ever had an angry moment in my life until now. And I have this dream. I don't even know if it was a dream. It was this complete like sensory experience. So in my dream, I wake up and I'm in this dwelling place and there's nothing around. It's just like this brick and mortar type of a building, one room. I run to the window to see if my car is there. It's not there. I look at this chair to see if my purse is there. It's not there. And I navigate myself out this door. And in the door, there's these long blades of grass. And so I'm kind of like crawling through the grass. As I'm crawling through the grass, the blades of grass are like sticking to my leg. And I flip over on my back and I look at the sky and it's these glorious clouds and they're moving like past me. And like the wind is blowing at me again, very similar to these other experiences I have had. And I look forward and it's like this group of people. It, it looked like they were almost Amish. I'm not sure, but just blissful and playing and families and laughter and just bliss, just human existence at its best, just like this level of innocence. And I woke up and I had this like voice come over me that said grace. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to name my heart grace. And I put my hand on my heart. And at that moment, I had complete acceptance and love for what grace gave to me. So I named my heart grace, but it gets better. So I listen to instrumental music when I sleep, especially in the hospital, just help me relax. The song that was playing was grace, but it gets better. So I couldn't fall asleep, it's 1.30. I'm like, well, I'll do a little work. I'll check my emails. I open up my email and there's an email waiting for me that says full of grace. 
Really? Yeah, powerful stuff. You don't know anything about your donor. So, you know, people have said, do you think her name was Grace? I said, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But when you look at the meaning of grace, I mean, it's a virtue from God, right? Right. And so, you know, if we're given a gift from someone else and we can repurpose that gift and do something really good to help radically change something that needs to happen, I feel that's my purpose. And that's why I've regained, you know, been able to kind of attain this level of positivity is because every obstacle I've ever had in life my life goes this higher sense of existence. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, I'm on top of the world. Yeah, you so, are definitely tuned in and dialed into the divine purpose, that's for sure. So, well, by the way, just coincidentally, can I give you three guesses what my oldest daughter's name is? Get out. Is it Grace? It is. So let, wow. let's, let's, move, let's move on. Uh, so now, there's something else I want the audience to hear as we kind of start to pull the, uh, the, the, the tray tables uh, closed and the seat backs forward as we get ready to land the plane here. <laughs> is you set a goal and you told your doctors when, when you're going in for the heart transplant, you, you set a goal that everyone around you probably just laughed and said, that's, that's just Don being Don. What, what was that goal? So I told all of my colleagues and my doctors that at my one year anniversary, I wanted to run a marathon because I had searched, you know, who ran a marathon at one year and there was no one. The best I could find was 15 months. Now, I'm sure there's probably maybe someone out there, but if anyone wants to fact check this, I would love to find out. So I said, I'm going to try to run a marathon at one year. Well, let me tell you, after I got that heart and I took my first step, I was like, oh, I may, maybe I shouldn't have committed to that. But I, I committed and I kept on taking one step after another, worked with my surgeon to try to start jogging early on. Jeff Galloway has been my coach through all of this, and he's been amazing. And so at four months, I ran my first official 5K. At four and a half months, I climbed Camelback Mountain. Uh, come, I guess it was like eight months, I ran a 10-mile race. At 10 months, I did a half marathon. And on my one-year anniversary, I ran a full marathon. Wait, no. So what happened five days ago, six days ago? I ran a full marathon. So ladies and gentlemen, listeners, it was one year ago last week that this woman ran a marathon exactly one year after a full heart transplant. Like you can hear people clapping in their cars right now. Like <laughs> people are cheering all over all over the world who's listening to this episode. Well, first of all, oh, congratulations on that. That is a Herculean feat. And I will say that we will claim it on this episode that you are the world record holder until someone <laughs> well, can come know. and refute it. But it's not about that. It's about something much bigger than me. But you know, it was crazy. At the finish line, there was a construction site and guess what was on that construction sign? Grace. Grace. And guess be. what my number was, and it wasn't planned. 365, 365 days with my new heart. So I have all these like beautiful symbols and messages, but I ran the race, you know, in honor of my organ donor and to raise awareness for organ donation. I ran it for my patients. It was the 15th annual marathon to end breast cancer. And so I, I was so excited for so many years. I wanted to run this race for my patients. So I ran it for my patients and I got to run with a few of my patients. It was so special. That's so it was amazing. just, it just meant the world to me. So it was terrific. Well, I, I love what, um, first of all, there's so many scriptural references about running the race. And there's so many things for, you know, from the Apostle Paul. And I tell people all the time that I believe God puts billboards up in our lives. And if we're on the right road, we'll recognize the billboards. And that's your whole story is about you seeing billboards. Yeah. About You may not be on the road you want to be on, but you know you're on the right one when you see the right billboards. And you've seen them over and over and over again. Just what an amazing, an amazing story. And 
So for those who are listening, if you really want to do some inventory on your life and think about what you've been through, everyone's journey is personal and everyone's journey, look, your, your, your obstacles are your obstacles and they're just as meaningful and, and sometimes hurtful as, as anyone else's obstacles. But sometimes when you hear someone else's story and you're able to put that in your, your story in context with theirs and then look at their attitude around how they've persevered through their story, not just so they can say, look at me, I'm an overcomer, but like you, Dr. Don, you're saying, I'm, it's not about me, it's about me being able to still be alive on this planet to motivate and inspire and help other people pursue their own picture on the Smucker's Jar, right? And, and live a life of meaning and of purpose as long as God will have you be on this earth. And that's just such an amazing, powerful testimony you have. And you're definitely walking out your purpose. So thank you for that, being who you are and the inspiration that you are. Thank you, Jeff. It's just been really a blessing to be in this position and to be able to work with patients every day who can trust me because they know I've been through this journey. And it's given me such a different level of compassion that I can really relate and connect with them. So it's just been a beautiful experience. And I'm just really privileged to be in the position I've been in and blessed that you know I, I am able to handle some of these hardships that I've gone through. And I want patients to know that a mid-disease during and after you can have vitality. You can flourish. You don't have to succumb to the disease. And, and I, I'm a testament to that, you know. And so that's what I really want patients to know is that you can make it through. There's going to be some tough days in that journey, but we want to embrace the good ones, learn from the tough ones, and just look forward. By the way, we need to brand something out there for you that has something to do with like grace365.com or something where like, you know, this all your motivation and inspiration and all your resources could be out there beyond even the Mayo Clinic. So I know you're passionate about a few things. You're passionate uh, obviously around patient care and just the way that lifestyle choices and health and healthy living and all that, but also, you know, organ organ donors. Can you just share with the audience, maybe challenge us a little bit to think differently than maybe we have in the past around that? You know, Jeff, often I have folks share with me that they're not organ donors and that they feel so terribly that they've never signed up until now. They hear my story and they feel compelled that they need to sign up. But when I sometimes pause and ask them, why weren't you signed up? The number one thing I hear is they're scared that the medical establishment wouldn't try to support their life if they were to die. They would let them die quicker. That couldn't be farther from the truth. That is such a myth. You know, but people are scared that if you're an organ donor, they're going to want to take those organs and give it to someone else very quickly. That's not true. But if you're not yet an organ donor and you now understand how meaningful it is to organ recipients when we get these organs and we're able to continue on our life. I always say, you know, organ donation is an opportunity to kind of transform uh, the finality of death and to allow it to kind of reignite life with purpose. And that's how we need to look at it. You know, why bury something that's never going to be used when we can continue to keep and nurture the life? And so consider being an organ donor. You can register with your state's donor registry at organdonor.gov. You just select your state. You can even register to be an organ donor now on your health app or your iPhone. Tell your family about it too. Let your family know. If you hadn't had a chance to register to be an organ donor, share it with your family. And of course, when you go to your local DMV, you can always designate it on your driver's license as well. Um, and you're right, Jeff. I also, I do lifestyle medicine and I really do attribute a lot of my vitality, if not you know, a lot of my vitality, I feel, has to come with my spirituality, my strong faith in God, love, gratitude, compassion, you know, all those virtues. But also, I live a very healthy lifestyle when it comes to nutrition. And so I'm a big believer in whole food, plant-based nutrition. And so there's great resources to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine for patients if you go to their website. 
as well as through Mayo Clinic. We have a lot of educational tools that would interest you and various um, educational opportunities that I've done for cancer patients that you can find on that website as well. That's fantastic. And I just, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm ready to just go, first of all, I don't run. I probably should run more, but now I feel like I need to go run a couple miles and maybe run through a couple walls and go do something <laughs> of real significance um, for the rest of the day. Uh, I feel like probably- every- with me. Come on, do one with me. I want to yeah, do one. Let's, 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 and let's slow down. Yeah, everybody has their yeah. own purpose and their own call, okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just, I bet you all of our listeners feel inspired and motivated. And thank you for using your story and not being afraid to go out there and tell it over and over again. Uh, because I know personally that it's motivating and inspiring a lot of people in so many different ways that you don't even know, right? You're touching people now that you may never get to know how much you meant to your story meant to them. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing your story with our audience. And I know that it's we're going to hear stories coming in. I hope that maybe you'll come back um, down the road and, and share updates with the impact you're making. Would you do that? Oh, I would love to. And I'm on social media too. I'm not very super active, but I'm always open on social media. And so I've connected with a lot of people there and they share their story. So they can find me there too. Excellent. Well, it has certainly been our honor to have you on, Dr. Dawn, and thank you so much. Please go out there, donate, be an organ donor, get healthy, be inspired by Dr. Dawn and her story and her lifestyle, and um, just go, go, go live with purpose. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.